Thanks for joining us for our series, Doxa Essentials, where we explore what it means to gather, go, give and grow as we seek to more fully live out our God-given identities as family, servants and missionaries. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. And one of the scribes came up to them and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You may be seated. Morning. My name is Justin. It's good to be here with you. We are wrapping up our Essentials series, uh, Gather, Go, Give, and Now Grow. So we talk about here at Doxa that those are not only kind of the unique practices of Doxa, but we believe they are more fundamentally the things humans were created to do. So we were created to be with one another. We were created to reflect God's glory on mission. We were created to give of ourselves and be conduits of God's grace. And lastly, that we were created to grow uh, specifically in our relationship with God. So uh, that's where we're at this morning. We got a lot of ground to cover. uh, So we're going to jump right in. So the passage that Robert just read from Mark 12 is called the Great Commandment, the two greatest commandments. And they are very familiar passages for many of us. You could not have been around church for very long and uh, have not heard these passages taught. So uh, one of the, the hard things about passages like these is that sometimes familiarity can obscure uh, some pretty obvious things that we should see in a text. Right, So um, as a preacher, I always come to a passage like this and you're trying to find like an outline, right? You're trying to find how are you going to make this thing into a sermon? And actually this one is is kind of a tease because when you first come to this passage, you go, oh, this is going to be easy, right? The main idea is to love God and then he gives me four points. I only need three. I got a bonus point, right? So uh, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind and all my my strength. Boom. Sermon written. What do I do the rest of the week, right? Uh, This is uh, fool's gold, though, because you start to get into it, and you go, okay, I'm supposed to love God, and I'm supposed to love him with my heart. You go, okay, that one makes sense. You know, my feelings towards God, I want to be around, you know, I love God, and it gets, you know, it can get a little mushy. It can get a little sideways sometimes and overly emotional, and we can, as some people have said, write prom songs for Jesus kind of a situation, and that can get a little weird, but then it starts to get hard, right? Because then we're supposed to to love the Lord our God with all our soul. And I have no idea what that means, right? And so I start to get in and go, oh, okay, I don't, I don't really know what that means. So I skip quickly to number three, which is love the Lord your God with all your mind. And I go, yeah, I can camp on that one for a while because that means learn about God, do theology about God, and I can love God by learning more and more and more about him, right? So I can, you know, usually do 25 minutes or so on that. And then I get to the last one and go, how do I love God with my strength? I don't, am I doing curls for Jesus or what's that? What's that look like? 
exactly. And so it's a little bit of fool's gold because you, you want to like break it down like that, but it doesn't really work that way. Because what Jesus is trying to say and what God was saying in the Old Testament through Moses was love God with all of who you are all the time. That there's nothing more important than you loving God. Okay? Now, as I said, with passages like this that are really familiar, sometimes obvious things can get obscured. And so I want to point out three obvious things about this passage in the context of what it means to grow and why we talk about growing, okay? Uh, that maybe, maybe they're new to you, maybe they're new perspectives, maybe they're not, uh, but we got these three things. So this passage tells us something about what God is like. This passage tells us something about what God is like. Now, I have always struggled with the idea that God would command us to love, right? Like that seems weird. At, at best, it seems impossible. At worst, it seems like emotionally manipulative and maybe abusive, right? It's like an arranged marriage or raising your kids to be Seahawks fans or just something that you're like, ew, that's, that's dirty. Maybe like you shouldn't do that, right? Like it just seems weird. So how can God say um, the greatest commandment is that we would love him? How do you command somebody to love? How does that add up in a way that doesn't make God look like a bad guy? So let me suggest to you a, a, a slightly different way to think about the greatest commandment, and in fact, all commandments, okay? Christians believe that God created all things, right? He created the entire physical universe. Everything that we can see and taste and touch and hear, everything in the physical universe God created. But it's more than that. God also created the laws that govern the universe. So the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the language that holds up, uh, uh, the, or the, the ideas that hold up language and art, that all of not only the physical universe, but kind of the laws of the universe, those kind of unseen things that hold it all together are also created by God. And he also created a step further than that, kind of the relationships or the proper relationships between those things, right? So God created for the artist and gave to the artist the color blue and gave to the artist the color yellow and created in them the ability to, to form relationship between that would create something incredibly beautiful. That God created my ear and he created a bird's song and he also created the relationship between the two that would allow me to enjoy that. That God created my hand and he created my wife's hand and he created that feeling of safety and security and love when they touch. That God created all of those things that he made the physical universe, the laws that govern the universe, the relationships between different things in the universe as an expression of his character, who he is, and what he loves. 
Now, he, he didn't have to do this. He could have created the world as a sterile, functional, joyless environment like protein shakes and wrenches or something like it could have been just all protein shakes and wrenches. He, he could have created this place as a world that was like technically livable but joyless like the Gobi Desert or Carnation. And, and but, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He, he created a place that we would enjoy. He created the world in such a way that when we drive out of church, we can see Mount Rainier and we can drive across the lake and we can enjoy that and we can look at those things and we can look at the person sitting next to us to the left and to the right and we can see something about God in them. That God created the world in such a way that it would reflect who he is. So what does this have to do with the command of love? Simply this. God created us as an expression of himself. And indeed, in his image. So that as St. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. God made us, and in so doing, not only reflected his character in us, but also defined the relationship that we're supposed to have with him. It's the way the world is supposed to work. It's our proper function. It's, as we talked about two weeks ago, it's the grain of the universe. It's the way the world is supposed to be. Like a songbird and our ear, God is meant to please our souls and satisfy our hearts. So a command to love God is a command to be who we were made to be, given to us by the one who made us. We were made to love him. Which implies a really important thing that I I want us to see from this passage, and and I want us to see really from the entire testimony of Scripture that may seem so simple, and yet I think it's important, that God is a person. He's a person. I mean, he's a divine person. I don't mean to say he's a human person. God is still divine, but God is a person. We talk about the Trinity, right? One God in three persons. And what can be obscured by the confusing theology of Trinity is the not difficult idea that God is a person. So what's that mean? It means that what we know about human relationships informs how we might relate to a divine human. Sorry, a divine person. That there is a relationship there. Now, there's obviously differences, but there is something to be learned about how to interact with God from how we interact with other people. So how do we do that? Well, we talk to them. We listen to them. We spend time with them and get to know their stories. We have experiences together that strengthen our bond through shared pain and joy. We remember and celebrate and mourn and pay attention. We think about them, wonder about them, and introduce them to the other people that we love. So the command to love is the command to be what we were meant to be and to experience the relationship we were made to experience. So if it's who we're meant to be and it's the relationship that we were meant to have, why then does it have to be a command? Why does God have to say the most important thing that you have to do is love me? 
Because there are a lot of other voices saying who we are and what the most important relationship in our life might be. There are a lot of competing narratives that are trying to define who you are, tell you what you were made from and what you were made for, and define all the relationships and pursuits and what matters and what you should go after in your life. And because of sin, all relationships are hard work that require intentional effort and attention. Right, married people? Relationships are hard work because we're broken. Broken people being with broken people is always going to be hard work. So God's command to love him is simply the command to be who he made us to be and to do what he made us to do. It's a calling back to our essential humanity. So what we learn from this passage first is that God is a person and is the person we were most uniquely created to be in relationship with. It's relationship priority number one. Second thing, this passage tells us something about who we are. So it tells us something about who God is. It also tells us something about who we are. So in the 17th century, there was a French philosopher sorry if you already checked out, named Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes was a 17th century French philosopher. He very famously said in Latin, cogito ergo sum. If your Latin's a little rusty, that means I think, therefore I am. So even if you haven't heard of Descartes, you have certainly heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am. And if you haven't heard that phrase, I would suggest you read more. And I would also suggest that your life, even if you've never heard of Descartes and you've never heard that phrase, your life has been fundamentally shaped by that phrase. Because what happened after Descartes wrote that is that people started to believe something. They started to believe that I think, therefore I am, was not just a good, a good kind of a good line, but that it was actually who I am. Because his point in saying that is, because I can think, because I can make an argument, that defines my reality. And so out of that, we in the Western world began to think of ourselves as primarily thinking things, cognitive and rational beings who think their way through life. And this is probably how we think of ourselves, that we are primarily rational, primarily cognitive, primarily logical, and we just make kind of a series of logical decisions that carry us through our life. But this is demonstrably not true. Easiest illustration of this. Uh, last night, I took my family out to a restaurant for dinner, a Mexican restaurant, or it's Northwest Mexican restaurant, and... <laughs> And, uh, and, and I'm sitting there as I do before the menu at really any place. And my brain, my logical brain is reminding me of my, myself and says, get a salad or ensalada. And, <laughs> and I know that's the right thing to do, to get salads. There's several salads. Some of them are even wrapped in fried tortilla, my favorite kind of salad. <laughs> salad. And... Uh, and, and, and yet, I won't. I don't. I would never. Right? Because carne asada is a thing that God has given to us as a gift to his children. 
And so I would never do something so foolish as to order a salad when carne asada is an option. Because what I know is trumped by what I desire. So if the great commandment is true, if that makes sense, we are not primarily thinking things. Otherwise, the greatest commandment would be to know God. Jesus would say the greatest commandment that all the other commandments hang on is know God and know your neighbor. That's not what he says. He says the greatest commandment is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So because the greatest commandment makes sense and it jives with our daily reality, we can say that we are not primarily thinking things. We are desiring things. We are hearted things, heart-driven things. We are moved by our desires. I think this is true theologically. I also think beyond just ordering at a Mexican food place, it jives with our daily lives. Let me ask you this. How much of your sin is the result of a lack of knowledge? On a day-to-day basis, how often do you sin because of your incomplete or bad theology? Do you look at porn because you don't know it's bad? Do you lie, cheat, or steal because you lack the information about their wrongness? Do you act selfishly or greedily because you didn't know they were wrong? Are you harsh with your wife or kids because you think it's the right thing to do? No. I do those things knowing full well that they are wrong. I do those things in that moment because I know full well This is not what God wants for me, but I want it anyway. If in the moment, if I'm beginning to act selfishly and someone was able to step in and go, hey, hold on, real quick, right before you're selfish and and you allow your hangry to ruin your family's day, um, just can we just talk about this for one second? Are you about to do this because you think that's the right thing to do? Because theologically you believe that's uh, that's what it means to be a good husband and father? I'd go, no, I just want it. I just want my way. I want my way more than I want what's good for my family right now. If I was honest, that's what I would have to say. So the idea that we are primarily cognitive, logical, rational beings that just think our way through life is foolishness. We are driven by our passions. We disobey because in that moment, we desire something more than we do God or what God wants for us. We want it more. So this morning, um, I, I get in earlier on Sundays, my family comes, and uh, my, my kids run up to me, and because I'm a good dad, and, and they're like, they run up, and, and uh, yesterday, uh, my kids got some late birthday money. Their birthdays are in early July, but grandma's a little slow on the, on the checks, and so... Uh, my son got $4, uh, four $1 bills, and he was super stoked about it. I mean, he's, you know, walking around with it like this, offering to buy dinner and stuff. And I'm like, I'll take a margarita. And, uh, 
but is like so stoked about this money. And he runs up to me this morning and he goes, daddy, daddy, I'm going to give one of my dollars to the church. I was like, oh, that's like 25%. (laughs) Bonus points. Nice work, man. And literally, um, uh, moments after he runs up to me, his older sister Lily runs up and she goes, yeah, I tried to talk him out of it. That is not a joke. That is not a joke. And, and so I, I think in that moment, is that because she thinks it's better to hold on to your money than to give your money to the church? No. It's because her heart is dark. <laughs> it is so very dark. That's why. She doesn't want to give things away. She wants to keep them and spend them on herself. Now, the Bible, throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, uses one word in particular to describe this reality, and that's idolatry. It's the Bible word. And idolatry is simply when we make something that isn't God into God. When we, when we kind of uh, deify something that is not divine, the Bible calls it idolatry. We make it into an idol that we might worship. And we know theologically, we, we believe theologically, that all of humans, not just Christians, but all humans, are created to worship, created to desire. This is, this is not a Christian idea. This is a human idea that we are constantly desiring things to give ourselves to, to lead us, to define our reality, to to give us value. That's just kind of the default mode of the human heart. And uh, honestly, one of the best, best uh, writings on this was written by a non-Christian guy named David Foster Wallace, who's kind of poster boy for uh, postmodern writing. He's he's passed away since, but he wrote, uh, he wrote a, a piece called This is Water. And in it, he says this, because he says, because here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, remember he is not a Christian, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. That is so insightful. He says, listen, the the default mode, you can't not worship. You can't not give your life to something. So be it money or your body or your spouse or your work or whatever, 
we worship. We might go, well, what is, I mean, I'm not worshiping. I don't have this little idol that I bow down to. No. So what you do is you define your life by what it tells you about you. You pursue it no matter what the consequences. Relationships are set aside for money. Family is sacrificed for money. You need more and more and more and more because you can never quite feel secure. Some of you wake up every morning and you look in the mirror and go, all right, I still got this. But tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, it will be worse and worse and worse and it will eat you alive because once you have looked in the mirror and given the mirror the authority to tell you how good you are, then every day you will get up in the morning as you age and go, I'm worse today. Not I look worse, I am worse. I am less today than I was yesterday. And when we deify relationships and we deify whatever secondary identities we have as, you know, our role at work, whatever the case may be, as long as they are propped up, so too is our sense of value. And when they are gone, so too is our sense of value. David Foster Wallace and the Bible say that this is, this happens to everyone, something you do every single day. And the key thing that he writes here is that very last line. says the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. To remind ourselves every day that we are worshiping. To pay attention to what it is our hearts are desiring. What it is that excites us. What it is that depresses us. What is it out there that has the power to do something to us? To pay attention to what our hearts are doing. It's why God's greatest commandment is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love him all the time with all that we are. Because he knows that he created us to love something all the time with whatever we are. And he knows that anything other than him will destroy us, will eat us alive, as Wallace says. Now, he gives a a long list of options. And I would just say this, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, only one of the people on that list came to die for you. Only one of the people on that list love you so much that he, instead of saying, here's a list of things to do, come to me. Here's a way to prove yourself. Follow these truths, obey these principles, and if you do them well, then you can be with me. Then you can accomplish what it is I've set you out to accomplish. Only one of the people on that list came to you and said, you're never going to. Let me do it for you because I love you and want to be with you. Only Jesus. So I can confidently say that he's worth it far above all else. We crave relationship, and we'll pursue it in all things at all times. Number three, if these things are true, then it fundamentally changes the way we do discipleship. And I mean this in two ways. One, it changes the way we follow Jesus, being a disciple, and it changes the way we lead others to be disciples. So kind of our little mission statement here is that we are followers of Jesus, making followers of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus, making disciples. Okay, so this applies to both directions. 
Uh, James K.A. Smith is a theologian at Calvin College, actually has shaped a significant amount of this idea for me. He says in his book, You Are What You Love, he says, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. That discipleship is about curating your heart. That it's paying attention to what is it that your heart desires? Where, where is my heart leading me? What is my heart craving? How am I satisfying my heart? So we don't often think about discipleship that way, but he says if we are truly heart-oriented people and our greatest end is to be in relationship with God, then it follows that discipleship ought to be the heart-oriented pursuit of relationship with God. But that's not often the case. Usually when we think about growing in our faith, we think about knowledge and obedience to God. Knowledge of God and obedience to him. This is kind of how we think of growing. Okay, I got I to read the Bible more. I got to know more. I got to read more theology and I got to obey better. That's growth. And so that we can kind of measure our growth based on those activities, learning about him and obeying him more. I want to suggest to you that while those things are good and necessary, they are secondary. They're derivative. They're effects more than causes. They're means more than they are ends. And in fact, if we focus on them, we undercut our ability to accomplish them. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. I believe that learning things about God is only valuable insofar as it causes you to love God and your neighbor. I believe that theology's only value is to illuminate your heart's affections towards God and your neighbor. I believe that loving God and neighbor is the foundational reason why God has revealed himself at all. Why he has given us the scriptures, why he sent his son to die for us and the spirit to convict, illuminate, and lead us. Does that mean that knowledge is worthless and a waste of time? I hope not, because I read a lot. And I hope I am not wasting my time. But unless our pursuit of knowledge serves the greater goal of loving God, it is a vain pursuit. In other words, it's about us more than it's about him. When learning about God is the highest end, that's about us. That's about earning and striving. That's not about God. Further, I believe that obeying God is only ultimately valuable when it is done out of love for him or in direct response to what is lovely about him. To be clear, I think obedience has some value, has real value, because what we talked about in weeks past, there is a way in which God created the world, and the closer we are to that grain of the universe, more of the pain of sin will be avoided. We will experience the, way, the world the way God intended for it to be more than we would if we were living in disobedience. But it is not of ultimate value because there's nothing we can do that would make God love us more and there's nothing we can do that would make God love us less. He loves us the most right now. There's nothing we can do, obedience or disobedience, to change that and there's nothing more important than that relationship. Paul famously picks up this same theme in 1 Corinthians 13. 
He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He goes, are you super spiritual but have not love? Waste of time. You know a lot of things, lots of knowledge, but have not love? Nothing. You obey and sacrifice and give away to the poor? Pointless if you have not love. Paul goes, if we miss this thing, the rest of it is a complete miss, a complete waste of time. And yet... And yet most of the way we have experienced discipleship undercuts this reality. I'll just speak for myself, and maybe your experience has been different, but most of the way that I have been taught and trained and discipled has been, okay, so we use here uh, the idea of head, heart, hands, right? That, that kind of makes up who, who we are, that we think about things, that we have heart, and all that desire and all that. And then we have hands, so kind of our actions. So the way we think, the way we love, and the way we live. Okay, head, heart, hands. My experience of discipleship has been a lot of information poured into my head with the assumption that that would lead to actions with my hands. Okay, so we go information theology into my head about God and what I'm supposed to do. That trickles down to action in my hands and then I do it. And then there's kind of a diagnostic piece to it where we work plan backwards and go, okay, well, if I'm in disobedience or I'm not living it out in my hands, then we trickle that back up and go, well, that must be a head problem. So we pour more, better, or different information, assuming that that's going to get to our hands and then we're going to start doing it right. Oh, we're still not doing it right? Okay, let's go back and do another Bible study. Let's learn some more things so that our hands will get it. And we completely disregard heart. But we've already established that's what, that what's happening when we sin and disobey with our hands is not a head issue. It's not bad theology. It's that our desires hijack the process and lead our hands in other directions. So we go, okay, we got to get head knowledge so that our hands can know what to do, but our hands are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Why, why, why? We go, well, because our, our heart's stepping in, headlocking our hands and walking away, chasing its desires. And we go, okay, well, we, I guess that's bad theology then. No! It's not bad theology. It's bad heart. Your heart wants something that your head knows is wrong. And yet we so rarely aim our discipleship at the heart. I think we have a vague sense that if we do the head-hand thing rightly, it like trickles somehow into heart. But we don't ever aim at it. And so we miss the point. It doesn't work. Adding more information won't alone make you love God more. Think about dating. You don't fall in love with statistics or bullet points. There is nothing lovely or lovable about bullet points. So if you make a lot of presentations, just keep that in mind. No one likes your bullet points. There's nothing lovely about them. That's not how we fall in love with people, is it? 
I, I didn't fall in love with an Excel spreadsheet of, my, of, of facts about my life, about my wife, about statistics about her. Well, she's 70% likely to, uh, you know, have lots of children or something. That was 100%, by the way, turns out. <laughs> That's not how it works. Now, is there a, a, a relationship between knowledge and love? Absolutely. I learned some things about my, life, my wife, and I loved her more. And I learned more, and I love her more. And I learned more, and I loved her more. But because I loved her more, I wanted to learn about her more. And then I learned more, and it made me love her more. And then I wanted to learn more. And it's the sick cycle. <laughs> that 12 years later, I love her more, and I know more about her. That's how this works. Only when knowledge is aimed at our hearts can we be changed. No one ever said people do crazy things for information. Queen didn't write crazy little thing called data. <laughs> love changes you. So how do we love? How does this happen? It's not complicated. The same way you develop a relationship with a person, you develop one with God. Time, attention, listening, experiences, knowledge. Just so happens that when we start to talk about God, we give it big names like spiritual disciplines. But it's the same thing. And, and the, the, the reality of that, the normalness of that can get obscured by making it something different and crazy like spiritual disciplines. No, it's just, it's just building relationship. It's how we cultivate our hearts for our wives and our husbands and our parents and our friends. So I got six spiritual disciplines I want to run through really quickly. Try to normalize them for you so that you might pursue relationship at a heart level with God. First, scripture reading. We get to know God's story the same way we'd get to know anyone's story. Right? We sit down at a first date and we go, so, where are you from? How'd you get here? We sit down in missional community and DNA and we go, who are you? What's your story? Where'd you come from? I mean, it's, it's striking, right, that God chose to reveal himself through a story, not through bullet points. He would never do something so terrible he chose to reveal himself in real time, in relationship, and write it down as story so that we might know. So there's a difference between God is all-powerful, which is a truth that we might pull out of the story. And it's true. It's great. It's a principle. But when we pull it out and make it a bullet point, it loses some of its oomph. So there's a difference between saying God is all-powerful and saying there was a time when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Let me tell you how he handled that. I mean, even the Ten Commandments, right? The closest thing to bullet points we have in the Bible, even the Ten Commandments, what is in the preamble to the Ten Commandments? I know you know. I'll just say it. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. The preamble is a reminder of who he is and what his relationship to the people are. And so he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because of the story, because of what he's done for them, because of the relationship that he has with them. 
He roots it in the story. That's scripture reading. Prayer. Talk to God about your day. Express your feelings. Stay connected. Just talk. There, there, there doesn't need to be these and thous in your prayers. Just talk. Check in with God the way you would check in with anyone in your life, husband, wife, or, or parent, or friend. Talk. Talk about real things. Talk about what's going on in you. Keep them updated. And, and, and when that stalls out, I mean, Christian tradition has given us dozens and dozens of amazing little prayers to keep us connected. I, I use the Jesus prayer a lot in my life. If I'm standing in line somewhere, if I'm commuting or whatever, the Jesus prayer is really simple. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a lot packed into that sentence. But it keeps me connected. Reminds me who God is and who I am and what our relationship is. Listening, silence. This requires disconnection which might be the most important discipline in our day and age. To be able to clear out distraction and just for a moment have some time with God. I call it intentional noticing. To just listen in silence. I have a routine every morning. Me and Pastor Alex race to see who can get into the office first. And so it's usually very quiet and dark. And I read the Bible. I journal a little bit. And then I set my alarm on my phone for 10 minutes. And I kneel down and put my hands, you know, like hands and head on my chair. And, and just have silence for 10 minutes. And it's, it's incredible how, how simple things like hearing the chair creak hearing the air conditioner come on, feeling my knees creak, hearing myself breathe reminds me of my own humanity and frailty. Because I remember every time I can, I mean, when was the last time you could hear yourself breathe? Maybe last time you climbed stairs, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) like to really just hear yourself breathe And be reminded, oh yeah, every time I'm dependent on God for that. And again, and again, and again. Powerful. But just spending time. We had a prayer walk with our staff this week. And we just walked around Bellevue for about 20 minutes. And we we, we did it in groups, so we didn't talk to each other. And we just noticed things. And you know what I noticed when I was walking around Bellevue? other people who weren't me. I was like, whoa, where did they come from? (laughs) Solitude. Being alone with your thoughts is terrifying. You'll be surprised what you can learn about yourself. And you'll be surprised how hard it is to focus your mind on God when you've got nothing else around you just by yourself, how your mind wanders. I've had people ask me, why, if God made us for a relationship, wants a relationship, why is it so hard to hear God? Why is it so hard to, to, to hear from him, to commune with him in that way? And I, I, so I have a question for half the room. Ladies, when you talk to your husbands, do you talk clearly to them? I'll assume that's a yes. Do, are they good at hearing? Is the problem your lack of clarity? 
See, I've been married 12 years, so I, I started about a one on this scale. I feel like I'm at a solid two now. Uh, but it's taken work to listen to someone who is talking plainly. Community. People reflect back to you who you actually are. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Other people do a great job, can do a great job, of reflecting back to us growth that they've seen in our love for God or death that they've seen in our love for God. Missional community, DNA, massively powerful tools. Journey groups, massively powerful tool for this. If you have been dealing with something in your life, either it be it sin or trauma or something significant in your life that you just think, gosh, I don't know how to get out of this, journey groups are a fantastic answer to that question. To have people around you listening to your story, paying close attention, who are trained to hear and talk back to you, tell you what you're saying, so powerful. Lastly, evangelism. Sharing the ultimate loveliness of God with others. This is, if you can remember, if you've been married a long time, the feeling of bringing your girlfriend home or your boyfriend home to meet the parents and kind of navigating that relationship. Somebody you love meeting somebody else you love and you just want them to love each other. You know, you remember that moment? Um, that's why, like, I, I, don't, I don't know all of you, but I, I would guess that I doubt uh, that in that moment you, you were arguing for this person to this person. Because if you were, like, in apologetics kind of way, um, my guess is the relationship's not great and never has been. What do we do in that moment? We tell stories. We find common ground. We talked about personal testimony, this thing that has happened with us and how they have been such a blessing to me and I'm so glad about this. And it's not statistics, it's not argument, it's experience, it's testimony. Bearing witness to how this person has blessed you, knowing that the blessing of this person would be the blessing for that person as well. And the practice of that, talking positively about your spouse or your girlfriend or God actually reminds you of all the things you love about them. It's not that different. And I'm not trying to suggest to you that God's just a guy. He's your homeboy. It's just he's not that big a deal. No. God is the transcend, most transcendent and powerful and impressive and important being in the universe. We're all completely dependent on him, which is what makes this so incredible. That it's not, well, God's not that big a deal, so we can deal with him like a person. And it's not, God's a huge deal, so we got to deal with him totally differently. It's, God's a huge deal, and he wants to be with us like a person. Can you believe that? That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what makes David Foster Wallace's list not a, a super helpful list. There's only one who has said, big, powerful, amazing, transcendent, and yet with us, dying for us, wanting normal relationship with us. You get what you aim for. Aim for the heart and you will love. And when you love, you will want to know more about God. And when you know more, you will want to love him more. And then you will know more. And in that process, be conformed into his image. 
fulfilling the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to be who he created you to be, to do what he created you to do. Let's pray. Jesus, you're worth it. Far above and beyond all others. Only you have said, there is no one higher, there is no one better, there is no one bigger. You are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, and yet with us. Within us. Alongside of us. Loving us. That is a paradox we will take to our graves. And yet one that could endure infinite exploration. God, draw us into that exploration that we may know, that we may love more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen.